Hey y'all, and welcome back to That Activist Podcast. Um, Today's episode, we are gonna be talking all about colonialism and the climate crisis. Um, My name is Julia, my pronouns are she, they, and um, I today am accompanied by Neil, another Bad Activist Collective member, as well as Gabby Felder. Um, So I'll have you do a little intro to yourself, Gabby. Hi everyone, my name is Gabby Felder. I am an educator, a cultural critic, and currently I work as a director of research and consulting at a diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. My pronouns are she, they. I live in Southern California and I'm super excited to be here. Hey everyone, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know me as Neil and my pronouns are he, they. So as a part of the collective, I work in the capacity of a writer, also as an activist in terms of climate as well as environmental justice. Amazing. So yeah, I'm super excited for us to dig into this topic today because I feel like it is ever pervasive in literally everything we ever talk about um, when we're talking about climate justice and uh, environmentalism and the climate movement, which we do a lot here at Bad Activist Collective. So yeah, so we wanted to just kind of kick it off starting with the baseline, which is debunking the idea that the climate crisis, which defined by many white conservationists and environmentalists, um, they really talk about the climate crisis as this like benign process or unintentional effect of industrialization instead of a direct result of you know colonial and imperial violence, extraction and exploitation of people, natural resources, and land that you know started with the transatlantic slave trade, the genocide of indigenous people and you know the import of colonialism and capitalism to non-European lands. Um, and so yeah, so I think that that's like a good um, basis that we really want to start with um, because it can be crazy that that's still a little bit contentious in um, in a lot of climate spaces. So I think I want to just kick it off with, uh, yeah, Gabby, kind of what your uh, first thoughts of what you think of like, okay, colonialism, climate crisis, what does that direct connect? Yeah, so there's a really great framework by Rupa Mehra, I believe is how you pronounce her name. And she created this flow chart with colonialism at the top, and then it branches off into capitalism and supremacy. And under that supremacy category, you have white supremacy, you have male supremacy, also known as patriarchy. You also have adult supremacy, which is like the idea that adults are more full humans or worthy of more human rights and respect than young people. And then you also have human supremacy, this idea that humanity and humans are at the pinnacle or at the top of this sort of like ecological food pyramid. And all of that bleeds into capitalism. So we think about child labor laws and the ways that children are forced to work. We think about the ways that we exploit land and animals and the environment for our needs. We think about the ways that we exploit women in the workplace and barred women from the workplace or force them to work in very gendered roles. Like it all is connected together. When we think of white supremacy, we think of how it impacts capitalism in terms of cheap labor and enslavement. Um, We don't have enslavement technically in the United States, though we do have the prison industrial system. But we do have a lot of indigenous farm workers doing very, very low wage work, which in my opinion, is like another form of enslavement. And so you, you look at how all of these systems are interconnected and you can't talk about colonization, you can't talk about capitalism without seeing how they're all interrelated. I love that chart. I swear I use that chart all the time. We've posted it on, on Bad Activist and I always send it to people because I'm like, if there's one one like 
flowchart to see interconnectedness, like this is the one. It's my favorite chart. I, I use it in all of the workshops that I do for my consulting work. It's, I think it puts the picture together for people because sometimes these terms float around and people aren't really sure like, okay, like, yeah, somebody came and colonized the United States, but what does it have to do with food systems in West Africa? And it has everything to do with food systems in West Africa. Yeah. And I mean, I think also, you know, when we're kind of breaking it down, like coming all the way back, you know, like colonialism and capitalism are like rooted in commodifying, extracting as much profit as possible and domination. And so it's like, when you're thinking about whether that looks like for lands, for humans, for resources, like all of these also being like interconnected, then you're always coming back to to that domination and, and exploitation, um, which I think is one of the biggest things for me that I always think about is like, how did the import of this, this model of extraction, like create all of the systems going forward that, that really caused the climate crisis. So, you know, you're thinking about the ways in which, you know, complex ecosystems like rainforests and grasslands and mangroves and forests were all then, you know, destroyed and for like monocropping of plantations or for for um you know ranches for you know like kind of cattle and other things like that and like you know the the model's always been to just exhaust that land um exhaust those resources exhaust the humans that are uh on that land as much as possible um and then you just you you bleed it dry and there'll always be more it's like that that idea like colonialism was always having more there was always more land to explore there was always more places to to exploit and you know how did that become like the norm and and that's what causes over extraction and i'm glad that you mentioned the monoculturalization of like an ecosystem because that's what white supremacy seeks to do to humanity. It seeks to like monoculturalize all of us so that like you breed out the black and indigenous people from a population, but you also breed out their ideas, their ways of seeing the world, their viewpoints. You exclude them entirely so that you have this sort of like white dominant narrative, both racially, but also like in a worldview sort of way. So all of these systems are working to sort of monoculturalize both people and the environment and even animal and plant life. I think it's really interesting that you both kind of mentioned animal and plant life and what you were saying, because I was sitting here thinking about the connections between colonialism and um, conservation. And the thing that came to my mind was the proportionary principle, which pretty much states that in the face of uncertainty, you assume that any work that you're doing to the environment will cause more damage than good. And I think that is a huge tenet of what's missing in a lot of the, not just conservation work, but just historically in terms of colonized lands and people. It's just like, there was always this idea that there's going to be abundance and the earth will always provide and um, nature will always find its way, which in, in theory is true, but not if, you know, there's not an equilibrium and, and everything is shifting in the direction of exhaustion at this present moment. So it, it just kind of blew my mind to sit here in silence and, and witness the connections just forming. Yeah, and thinking about conservation, I think a lot of the narrative around it is that the white folks, the colonizers who came into a place are the experts. They're the experts when they're not even native to that particular environment to begin with. There are people who've been living there. Like I just watched this documentary about um, indigenous Australians. They've been in Australia for over 50,000 years. 
have had developed an intimate connection with the land in Australia, have gotten to know the plant life, the animal life, the ocean life, all of this and how it's interrelated and interconnected, understanding the water cycles and the, the seasonal cycles of rain and droughts. And then colonizers come in and they're like, oh, we know the best way to take care of this environment that we're foreign to, that we don't have this like 50,000 plus years of experience to get to know. And you see that happen over and over again. In the United States, we had Madison Grant who was a very famous conservationist, but his entire motto was basically like, remove indigenous Americans from the land so that we can preserve nature for white tourists and make sure that there are no black folks that are allowed to come here either. And he wrote lots of very like white supremacist heavy texts and documents, but was like at the forefront of this sort of like saving and preserving the environment. And it all kind of goes back to this sort of like ideal that things need to be pure or pristine. That's like very much rooted in white supremacy and that there is something tainting it. And usually the thing that is tainting it is black folks and indigenous folks. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. It's so, it's so interesting when you're saying that too, because it's like, part of it makes no fucking sense too, because like colonizers and white people both became the extractors and the saviors of the land. So it's like, you think of like in, what is considered United States now, you know, have like you manifest destiny, which is this idea that like uh, indigenous and native people were, you know, they're wasting God's like green earth and the bounties by, um, you know, not exploiting the land in the way that Europeans um, thought that it should have been done, you know, with like land ownership and like you said, like monocropping, like all of this. And so, you know, they went in, they used that as a justification to steal uh, indigenous lands and then at the same time then say like the wilderness which is is barbaric which is equal to like the native person um, this also needs to be like protected from humanity but like extracting the white supremacy from that so then you have like this kind of like other backass way which is like you know you have national parks and all of these things in the United States and they're like oh my God, I cannot believe that indigenous people were like burning the lands. Like these are pristine, beautiful places. And then now we have like extreme uh, wildfires because indigenous communities were doing controlled burns for years and years and years. And then they didn't burn anything for like a hundred years. And now you have these like insane wildfires. So it's like part of it is also like this just like insanity that that makes no sense in, in connection and so that's always what happens is like when the colonizer when the white supremacist rewrites these histories over and over again like it centers whiteness no matter what that relationship actually looks like yes there's so there's actually two things in what you said that i want to touch on the first is being in california the wildfires are out of control like Every single year, I grew up in Southern California. I've lived here essentially my whole life. And every single year that I was a child, I remember having to evacuate from my home. Like I had multiple friends who lost their homes. And at first it was pretty much a Southern California epidemic. But as we've seen over the years, it's spread all the way up to Northern California. It's in Washington. It's in Oregon. It's spreading all across the nation. And I actually work with a lot of Chumash folks um, in Southern California who are like, yeah, we used to control burn the area and we didn't have wildfires like this. And then on top of that, you have global warming, right? You have temperature increasing. So not only is the temperature rising, the winds are getting stronger. You haven't had controlled burns. And even if like, I'm sure wildfires definitely sparked before 
um, when indigenous folks were doing controlled burns, but you didn't have all of these residential structures and people in a place. So if a wildfire broke out, it's not that big of a deal. You can just be like, oh, okay, we'll just not go over there. But now you have these multi-million dollar homes and properties and schools and all of this infrastructure that is very much connected to colonialism still that they need to preserve, they need to save. And you do have to protect people's homes and livelihoods. But sometimes it, it's just, you're building houses in places that might not have been the best place to build that house. And, it, and like the indigenous people knew, like maybe this isn't the best place for us to have a settlement. Maybe we'll move a little bit this way or a little bit that way. But that's not really at the forefront of what invading folks and colonizers are thinking of when they do city planning, for example. They're thinking like, how can we get the most wealthy people into an area like Santa Barbara? It's an extremely expensive area to live and that's what they're trying to draw in. They don't really care about like this actual safety of the residents. The other thing I wanted to touch on was you mentioned like manifest destiny and this concept of like, oh, they're not using land the way that God intended. And I think that's so, it's so true and it's so fascinating because the ways that indigenous peoples have connected to God or spirit or the divine or the universe, whatever you want to call it, has been through nature. And like, that's how they were using nature. Like in African traditional religions specifically, like the, the deities or the spirits themselves are nature. So you wouldn't pollute a river because that is Oshun. You wouldn't pollute the ocean because that's Olokun. Like, why would you harm this energy that brings things to you? And so it's it's very, it's like a very interesting viewpoint to see the differences between different forms of like religion and spirituality and their connection to nature. That was incredible. Um, so you mentioned something a moment ago about um, indigenous communities and them not being able to uh, practice the way that they would have practiced before they were colonized. And uh, it kind of made me think about heritage loss and how so much of what was being done was a part of a sacred tradition that was passed down through their communities. And now that the communities are being displaced, they don't have the natural resources, they don't have the connection to nature anymore. And um, it kind of brought me back to a lot of stuff that happens in the Bahamas where I live. and. Um, it's kind of centered around the removal of mangrove uh, forests. And um, we know the effects that that has in terms of the hurricanes and sea level rise. So it's just kind of crazy to see that this industrialization and this, um, you mentioned manifest destiny, how it's, it's taking away kind of at a faster rate than it's providing, at least for everyone, in terms of having an equal rate of progression as a society. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely like an extractive policy, an extractive framework. And you're right, you, it's a loss of heritage. If someone comes in to your particular community and they're extracting mm -hmm. a particular product, maybe it's cobalt mining, maybe it's the fruits and vegetables that are native to your land. Sometimes those elements, either like minerals or food or water, have a like specific cultural or spiritual or traditional connection that's now lost. So there are probably communities that were like, oh, we eat mangoes for this particular like cultural or spiritual event and now don't have that, as much access to keep those traditions alive. Or we would usually use these sorts of rice grains for this festival and now you don't have access to that because it's being exported to other parts of the world where white supremacy wants the things to be exported to. It's all about how we bring wealth from the third world and drop it in these other parts of the world. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something that 
I see, especially when it comes to fisheries in the Caribbean. And um, in terms of populations of local, I guess, marine life, such as the Queen Kong, for instance, that's gone extinct throughout the Caribbean. I'm talking Bermuda, Haiti, um, Jamaica's population is decimated. Uh, the Bahamas has maybe one of two active populations and they're steadily on the decline. But when you look at the research in the literature, it shows that the amount that we consume as a population of just 400,000 individuals is nowhere near the export value of the fisheries that's being exported to, especially our biggest um, consumer of that would be the United States. And so it's just kind of like, on one end, conservationists, environmentalists, um, activists were all over here lobbying for a closed season for conch. And then when you look at the wider picture and the the capitalist, I guess, approach of it, you see why that system hasn't been in place because it's just way too lucrative to uh, put any kind of time stamp on. There's a really great quote from Thomas Sankara, who is the former president of Burkina Faso. And he essentially is saying like, where is imperialism? Like, look at your plate, like look at all of these imported foods, that's imperialism. It's about like, okay, well, like maybe this is bad for the environment in Southwest Asia, but people in the United States, like, really love this type of tea or like like sage right that's another thing that we talk about in southern california a lot of like white sage grows here natively but it's going extinct because people are like i want to sage my home like i don't really care it's really trendy and cute to burn sage and sage my home so thinking about how all of these like crops and plant life and food and fruits and vegetables and salt get just transported for the frivolous needs of other communities but also even thinking about um, the limits that we set on fishing, for example, or what would be a healthy amount of uh, lead or mercury in a water system. They're taking it into account for the average white American diet. Like the average white American person eats X amount of fish. These levels of toxic chemicals are okay to be in this fish. But what about indigenous communities who are still fishing in those areas who might eat higher amounts or different amounts or use the fish in different ways? Like they don't take those populations into account because they're like, well, the food is for us. Like, we're not worried about how other people are using this food system. Yeah, definitely. There, oh, first of all, I can always go into food systems. There's so many things that go <laughs> into food systems. I won't dive too, too deep. But, like, I think also it's always interesting when we talk about, like, cash crops and commodity crops and, like, all these things. Is like, people also talk about it. Like, it just kind of, like, naturally occurred. Like, oh, well, the demand was so high that, like, we just had to grow all of that. When you're thinking about, like, no, like, like colonialism was a violent process in which people were, like, not allowed to grow, like, their, their native food. Were, they were, like, intentionally stripped of food sovereignty, where they're intentionally stripped of these things, where you have, like, places that, um, you know, grew, like, a ton of different, like, biodiverse um, amounts of food that had, like you said, like, cultural heritage, um, and, and part of that monocropping also, like, it didn't just, like, didn't just affect that that time when those things are grown there because now the soil is stripped and you have you know you have all of these like kind of long lasting effects too so it, you know it's always interesting when we're thinking about like food and farming as as like that is also like a genocidal project and like um, also you know like when you're thinking about like fish or like ecocide we talk about you know like things going extinct like that also isn't just like a like it do, it doesn't just like happen because there's like more people and more mouths to feed or whatever like bringing back if you're thinking about you know in the United States they intentionally wiped out the buffalo like there were like 
millions and millions and millions of buffalo in, uh, you know, on this land that indigenous people lived off of, um, and they both, like, sold the, like, leather, but then they, like, intentionally, like, m- like, murdered all of the buffalo in order for indigenous communities to not survive. So it's, like, th- this relationship with ecocide, like, none of it is unintentional, and I think that that's what I always want to bring back to, like, with the colonialism and the climate crisis is, like, we always want to, like, I think, like, the white narrative wants to make it, like, this inevitability of history and, like, growth just happened and we had to just, like, come here, but, like, every step of the way was, like, an intentional genocidal process. Yeah. And when you were talking that you, before you even mentioned the indigenous Americans and the Buffalo, that's exactly what I was thinking was like the intentional killing of the Buffalo. And when you look at the history of battles with indigenous Americans, as in indigenous Americans potentially coming into a community, maybe something violent happens. And then like the backlash is like tenfold on the part of like the colonizer. Most of the times those raids were for food. They were like in an isolated area. They were starved because they were not allowed to farm or had been removed to a part of the land that wasn't fertile. And they're like, well, there's no other option. We're just going to have to sneak in here, steal some food and get out. And then the reaction is like this intense genocidal wave. And that's like by design. They're like, we know these people will be desperate enough to starve, but they will be starving. And so we have now an excuse to attack. So you're right. It's very much like a violent process. It's not this like natural progression and I was talking to my husband the other day about sugar and how like sugar like drove the transatlantic slave trade sugar is the reason why Europe is wealthy why the United States is wealthy and I'm sugar is like an addictive substance but they put it in everything on purpose it's in ketchup it's in pasta sauce it's in like the most random packaged foods that you would think of and that's not a product of like oh population growth You know, like that's like an intentional, we need to keep the sugar industry running so that we can continue to make wealth and continue to have an enslaved population. Same with cotton, same with rice production. Like cotton was not the linen that most people all over the world were using. People were using all sorts of other types of materials to make clothing, lots of wool in Europe, but cotton became big because they're like, if we use cotton, we can keep an enslaved population, it grows really fast, we can get wealthy, and so on and so forth. So it's it's by design. It's not like an accident or like a happenstance that these are the crops or the products. Tea, for example, right? Like invading Asia for tea to be able to bring that to Europe. Like England is now associated with tea more than Asia. Like it's, it's just <laughs> a very wild thing to me. <laughs> yeah, and also like how, the, like, you know, created, you know, post maybe formal colonialism I never say post colonialism because <laughs> that's not something but you know like think about also you know the way that it that like the intentional creation of dependency models you know thinking about um Caribbean Latin American nations like I mean all over um as you know when you strip the the sovereignty to create your own food to have your own livelihoods because you've imported cash crops only um and then you become you know dependent on on other nations for both like the food you eat and for you know the income and everything it's like it's the this setting up of um of like a global system um, that will always be bringing profit back to Western and uh, European powers. Yeah, the United States, for example, will go into like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They will own all of the mines there between the US and Europe. They'll mine cobalt and diamonds and all of these things and then sell it back to them. And then same with Latin America, like they 
own all of the ranches and the crops there. So they'll like get beans and corn and rice and then sell it back. Like most of the products there are imports. I just saw this tweet from an Afro-Latin woman that I follow who was in a grocery store and she was like, why is Panama importing strawberries from the United States when we grow strawberries in Panama? And it's definitely, it's an intentional thing where it's like, we're going to take this market or we're going to like out-compete because we have our hands in all of these other markets so that now you're forced to buy our products because they're subsidized. Now it's more expensive to buy strawberries in your own country than importing them from the United States. Julia and I had this incredibly intense conversation about pineapples and and, uh, the colonization of just that industry and a part of it. Um, really hit home because pineapples were one of the key industries in the Bahamas, like before the tourism model. And then suddenly it was Hawaii and it was just a situation to cut it really short where the country, the Bahamas, was pretty much shut out of the pineapple trade as canneries opened up in Hawaii and um, in New York and New Jersey. And, you know, it became more expensive to get pineapples from here, even locally. And so now it's just been reduced to a summertime festival here on one of the islands. But like thinking about it, I'm just like, wow, we, we really did that for like a hundred years. The Bahamas had a chokehold in the pineapple industry and, and then just boom, it just was done. Yeah, they just, they bounce from market to market, depending on whatever like political or other economic needs they have. And they, they'll also like, mess up other political systems in other countries. Like Guatemala has been in the news in the United States because Kamala Harris was telling folks like, don't come to the US if you're coming from Guatemala illegally in quotes. But the United States helped orchestrate a 40 year civil war in Guatemala because they wanted to nationalize a fruit company because they're like, oh, like maybe people in Guatemala should be able to afford the fruit that we're growing here. Like that's such a novel concept. But like that destabilized a nation to this day. And the the repercussions of that is like the U.S. immigration crisis. And so you'll hear eco-fascists say these things about like, oh, immigration is bad or we need to get like get rid of the human population or decrease these birth rates. But like not connecting the reasons for immigration being U.S. imperialism and colonialism to begin with. Yes, I also want to backpedal that, Neil, you made that conversation sound way more legit. Neil and I were like drunk, like trashed off our ass. And we're talking about we're talking about how like like banana, like within the Latin American and Caribbean context, that like bananas are always talked about. We're like, are people ready for the pineapple conversation? We're like, we're screaming at this point. So I also want to put there that like you made that sound like way more of a sophisticated conversation than us screaming about colonialism um and pineapples like being super trashed. <laughs> I'm ready for the pineapple conversation. <laughs> Next time y'all get together and talk about fruit, hit me up. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, oh my god, yeah. No, it, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy to think about all these crops. I mean, like, you'll literally be, like, I spend a lot of my time in my other job hanging out with small-scale coffee farmers, and, like, they're, like, they grow some of, like, the best coffee in the world, and yet are drinking, like, the dissolvable, like, Nestle coffee, because they can't afford to, like, buy the the coffee that they make. I mean, not, like, actual farmers, because they could just grab it, but, you know, like, a big, by the time it goes through the roasting process, which so many times is, like, extracted not in country, it's in other places, you know, like, there's, all, there's all of the, like, the ways that supply chains are set up to, like, intentionally pull all of the resources out and then sell back, like, 
I mean, if you're in Mexico, you're always eating U.S. rice. Like, I mean, you're always eating U.S. corn and you're always <laughs> eating like all like any time you're there, which is just we can also get into trade laws <laughs> maybe later. <laughs> we should yeah. be like, fucked in I saw this clip not that long ago. I forgot where it was, but it was, I believe, somewhere in West Africa. There were people um, harvesting chocolate and they didn't even know that it was chocolate. They're like, I don't know. I just have this job. Like, I know it goes to like the wow. United States. Like, what is it? And it's like chocolate. Like, they're they're getting it from you and then selling it back to you. And that's also partially because like the chocolate plant itself doesn't. Most people don't recognize it. It doesn't look like chocolate because it goes through so many processes. But that's like a whole other thing too. Like most of us don't even can't recognize native plants or the plants that our food come from. If you were outside in the wilderness, how many people would even be able to recognize like a blueberry bush? Um, I used to watch uh, Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain, and there was an episode where he went to Puerto Rico, and there's a little island off of like the main island of Puerto Rico called Vieques, and he was there talking um, with this woman who had this like farming project trying to get young folks living in Puerto Rico to be able to identify plants and so she had children just like be like okay like draw where squash comes from draw where apples come from and they were drawing like strange plants they were like I don't know like I'm just I'm making it up now and so like people don't know what pineapple plants look like you know like what banana trees look like plantains oranges like all of these things are not identifiable to us anymore so we've like that knowledge has been stolen from our communities and from like all people at one point were able to identify plants and now none of us can insane wow okay, i feel like we we might need to pivot away from food because i could talk I about food forever no i i i have been yeah i think another thing we really wanted to to kind of hit as well is like thinking about um first of all like this idea that colonialism in like is as this past entity um is a thing that has stopped and is done and we're to talk about it as like you know whatever, Christopher Columbus, all this, that, that kind of like historical perspective. Um, but you know, it's not just like the repercussions of colonialism that we're experiencing today, but also like neo-colonial projects. And that's like one thing I really wanted to bring in because I feel like part of it that, um, I don't know if people are ready for in the climate conversation is talking about how conservationist projects and like uh sustainable development projects and how yeah all of these can be um both like excuses uh justifications for colonial projects but also like replicate uh colonial like models of extraction especially when they're happening internationally yeah there's there's a lot well first i would say colonialism never stopped the united states has several colonies hawaii puerto rico Guam, Samoa, and is has military bases all over the world. So they are actively colonizing people everywhere. And that's just the United States. But then thinking about, like you're saying, this neo-colonial project of conservation in other countries outside of the quote unquote Western world. And it's very much this, the same sort of framework where we're the experts, we have these sustainable development goals, and we're going to go into this particular region. And a lot of times, it will center around like reproduction sometimes, like women's bodies and being like, oh, we need to help lower the birth rate and push all of these people into a more formalized Western style of education. And I'm I'm all for folks getting an education, but I want them to build those institutions how they see fit. And I want them to family plan how they see fit. I also want, there's also this sort of like veganism movement that's connected with 
conservation as well. And veganism is, it's not necessarily an inherently bad thing, but when you bring it to like an indigenous population in like East Africa, for example, who's pastoralist, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Which is why I really like um, when there are African or indigenous or Asian led organizations in those places working with indigenous peoples to be like, what do you need to be able to live your life sustainably and how can we work together with all of these other food systems and government systems and education systems to make sure that it, it's sustainable, that it will last, that it has longevity. And a lot of that comes from drawing from indigenous knowledge. I read this um, study that was done in Ethiopia and they were talking about um, taking care of cattle during drought and they weren't able to take care of cattle because of the climate crisis and rising temperatures in Ethiopia and it was leading to lots of droughts. And there was this old song that people would sing about a particular tree and that tree was actually drought resistant and cattle can eat those leaves. So they did a study where they planted all of these trees in a particular area and they, like, they were like, okay, let's see if this population is able to sustain their cattle without it causing more water damage, without us having to like plant all of these cover crops. If we just plant these long-term trees that grow really quickly, that are drought resistant, and like the leaves can feed cattle, and it worked. All because of like some old song that like the community there would sing about, like, oh, like this tree provides like wisdom and health and healing for us. So like looking at the ways that these communities, like I said earlier, already have this really intimate connection with the environment it's still there. We just have to remember where it is and like tease it out from like our elders and our, our ways of being and our modes of seeing the world. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's so like important to be grounded in that because I feel like I'm, I just, I can't handle hearing like more white environmentalists talking about like what other places need and what other people need. And like having this kind of top down, like we are the experts you we need to like export knowledge from here to there and and like also you know when uh, I kind of pose this initial like to talk about this there's also you know like when we're thinking about conservation or environmental projects as being like colonial projects it's not just like metaphorically like I'm also talking about like like tree planting carbon offset projects like the red project and so many others that now have like commodified carbon which is a whole other thing we can get into like uh the commodification of that but like where they literally go into countries and take land that is unused i'm using air quotes um unused land uh sound familiar um and <laughs> monoculture monocrop like non-native trees there um and then what they do is you know you have like either organizations or corporations that are getting their carbon offset so they're planting on all those trees um you know thriving for 50 years and sequestering 50 pounds of carbon every year or whatever and there's no local integration they like bar people from going to that land um and then you go back and like a not successful because like of all the the fucked like community elements of it and then b there's like no integration where you go back and like all of those projects like they're they've done studies that like the majority of monoculture like offset projects in the past 10 years like 90% of the trees did not survive and like grow to be trees. So that's like, so where's the coffin that you're offsetting? Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, and it's like, it's so interesting. Cause like my other job that, uh, I work with is, um, we, 
help like basically fund community-led reforestation projects mm-hmm. so like cooperatives there's communities they're they're mostly doing agroforestry so like undoing colonial models of farming by um by planting and like food forest systems um way smaller scale we're working with like kind of communities and i i do presentations a lot um at like different conferences and stuff and every single conference i have someone like asks well, how do you make sure the communities don't just cut down those trees? Like, there's always this, like, attack that, like, the, uh, you know, whatever that be, the peasant communities, the indigenous communities, those those communities are just, they're just going to log the trees, they're going to cut them down, so that we need to protect the trees that are on their own land, which are also, like, causing microclimates and, like, re- restoring water and nutrients, or, like, have so many reasons to keep those trees alive. Like, what, what like, outward thing are we doing to ban communities from cutting down those trees? And that's, like, always the first question that comes mm-hmm. out, which is, like, it, it just, like, it, it shows that there's, like, this, this paternalism. distrust. And, yeah, it's a paternalism. And it makes me so angry, and I go off every time I get that question, because it makes no sense, like, ever, you know? And I'm like... If they're cutting down those trees, it's also not because they, like, don't care about the environment. It's usually because, like, you know, we're talking about farmers who probably don't have enough money to be able to, like, provide for their families because we're talking about, like, coffee uh, supply chains that are super consolidated in which they're getting, like, the bare, 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 bare minimum for, like, per pound. You know, there's, there's all these other things. So it's like, if they're cutting down those trees, w- why aren't we talking about the root causes of why they have to do illegal logging? Like, you know, right. so like, it's all of these things that we're like, ah. <laughs> We need, next time someone says that, you should be like, well, we can make sure that they don't cut down those trees if you stop drinking coffee and buying clothes <laughs> and eating Nutella, because, you know, like, palm oil or whatever. Like, if you stop, you know, living your life how you see fit, then maybe they don't have to cut down those trees anymore. Because you're right, it's all connected. Like, where do we get our resources from? Most people are like, oh, Amazon. I just, you magically go online, you order something, and it appears at your house without any thought about the production that went into it. Like, even, I don't want to, like, derail us onto anything else, really, but thinking about clothing production even, right? Like, People are like, oh, I just bought this cute top from Forever 21, not thinking about, like, the South Asian women who are paid, like, 10 cents to make it. And, like, how their families are like, maybe this isn't the business to go into. Maybe we go into illegal logging because it's more lucrative. Like, not putting this together. There's a really great documentary. um, It's by ABC. And I think it's called Guardians of the Amazon. But it follows um, Indigenous folks from Latin America hunting down these illegal loggers and it's other indigenous people and they're they're talking to them and the the main guy in that um, documentary he's like he calls everyone warrior and he's like warrior why would you do this like why would you betray us but they're like i have to feed my family like i know that you are trying to protect the forest but i'm trying to protect my family and it's this contention because colonialism has intentionally stripped populations of their ability to be self-sufficient and now it's not only that they're dependent on getting products from Western nations, they're, they have to sell them to Western nations. There's no other buyers. Like Haiti is a really great example of this. Once Haiti won their independence, the United States and all of Europe basically embargoed Haiti. So there was no one to buy sugar from Haiti. And they had been like the major, the world's biggest producer of sugar at the time. And so they were like, well, if we can't sell it anywhere, we won't have any money coming in. We won't have an economy. And to this day, Haiti's infrastructure is like not the greatest. So they intentionally make it so like you have to participate 
in this system in order to have enough money to beef up your economy or feed your family or whatever it may be, because you can't do that internally in your own country anymore. That was incredible. Oh my goodness. That, <laughs> okay, so there's a similar thing that's going on here with, um, with fisheries, of course. And so there are individuals, the same way that Julia mentioned, um, the question of how are we gonna stop locals from cutting down the trees? There's also an issue with uh, people asking, how are we going to stop the fishermen from harvesting uh, juvenile conch or juvenile lobster? How are we gonna stop them from having large amounts of, of catch? And it's just kind of like, um, the problem isn't the fishermen who are trying to get a, a few dollars um, and, and hence are breaking some of the key rules that we've set in place. The issue is that they're competing against mega corporations and they're competing against huge fishing vessels that are exporting at rates that they couldn't possibly ever dream to export at. And so it's like, um, you kind of get put into a state of survival where you have to choose between yourself or the, the protection of what you know, um, being firsthand on the ground, the, the protecting that. So um, it's, it's a pretty dangerous place to be put in because it's almost inherent to blame the person you can see. You know, people like to say, oh, better the enemy I can see than the one I can't see. So it's just like, okay, local fishermen are doing this. Uh, local uh, indigenous people are, are cooperating with logging. And it's just like, okay, well, they're not just doing it for sport, you know? Yeah, and it, it goes back to like that conservationist idea that like these people don't know how to take care of their own natural environment. Like these people don't know how to do it. We need to swoop in, tell them what to do. We need to save them as if the United States did not destroy the environment here, as if Europe didn't destroy environments all over the world. And even thinking about like, especially island nations, right? Like there, there's not a lot of quote unquote industry because there's not a lot of tech. Like, that's what people mean. There's not a lot of, like, industrialization, which was intentional when the colonial countries pulled out. They never put factories in those colonies on purpose. They're like, we're extracting material from you, but the factories remain in Europe. We're not going to give factories. So when they pulled out, there's no infrastructure. And these, and a lot of these people, similar to those chocolate farmers, were like, I don't even know what these materials are used for. I never even see how they get processed into the end product that I then have to buy back. So how do I even begin to build a factory to manufacture computers or whatever else they're doing in another part of the world? And so they intentionally like extracted those materials and extracted that infrastructure to a different part of the world. And like island nations, for example, are told like, oh, like it's not profitable. You don't have any industry here. The only thing you can go into is tourism or selling your resources to mm -hmm. Western nations. Like those are your only two options. And tourism in and of itself is colonialism so you're, you're trapped in this cycle where you just have to continue to participate in colonialism because it's like i'm either going to cater to the westerners who get to come here and enjoy my island that i don't even get to enjoy because i'm at work or i sell the last bits of my ecosystem that actually makes it a, ha a habitable and beautiful place to the west you don't really have any other place to go unless you leave which is ultimately what they want is like for you to leave so that they can move in so you leave and you go to the West because it's like, well, the only place I can get a good job or get a good education is in Canada or Europe or the United States. It's a mess. <laughs> that happens so much. It happens so much in the Bahamas. It happens in Jamaica, in Antigua, Barbados, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. It happens because a lot of the educated youth, there isn't um, 
there isn't a system in place for us to benefit from the degrees that we would have spent whatever amount of time to obtain. And so, for instance, my sister graduated university this year, and she's going straight into a master's program. She's probably going to try and do a PhD after that. But what I'm saying is the intent isn't to come back to the Bahamas because who are you coming back to? And, and what are you going to do? Whereas um, in hotels especially, there's a high turnaround rate of expats coming into the country. And when they come here, they have their needs met. They, they have a gas allowance. They have their kids put into all of the best schools. They live in great communities. And it's just kind of like, okay, when all of the young people that have these, um, what we call technical training and, and um, academic training as well, when they all leave or never come back or marry foreign individuals, you know, as a means of getting out of here, like what do we have left? We have a country full of expats. And that's happening in places like the Cayman Islands, for instance, where the, the local or indigenous population just becomes so watered down. And like we've been saying time and time again during this podcast, it's absolutely intentional. Mm-hmm. And that also breeds like a loss of culture because the way that tourism is colonialism, you have to package your culture in a way that's entertaining for Westerners, like go to Hawaii and they put on like a luau, you go to Jamaica and everybody's like wearing, talking about Bob Marley and like Yaman, like they, they put, they like play it up like for tourists. And then you lose that cultural heritage, especially if all the people who hold it are like, I can't make a living here. I have to immigrate to the US or to some other Western nation or someplace else where there's more quote unquote industry. Then you don't, all you have left is gimmicks and expats, exactly like you said. Oh, 100%. In my regular job, um, I have to do programming, and a part of it is to always advertise the Bahamas. And when you do it, it's just like you you get your draft back, and it's like you can't say this because there's racial undertones to this. Like um, like schoolyard games, for instance, we call it ring play here. And a lot of it, there's one called um, There's a Brown Girl in the Ring. And you're around, you're just kind of like ringing around a rosy and you're just kind of like circling the person and skipping and the girls in the middle. And it, you know, because of racial undertones, you can't advertise that. Or um, there are other aspects of our culture that that kind of speak out against, um, like Columbus, for instance. And you're always traveling that fence of, of wanting to be marketable and also wanting to be authentically Bahamian, authentically Jamaican or whatever the demographic is. And so, um, just the spirit of colonization, it takes away so much because there's really only so many um, sun, sand, and sea advertisements that you can listen to about the Bahamas. And you totally don't know anything about the history of piracy or the history of pineapples or um, just the history of, of rum running through the Southern American states. And there's so much more to the to the region and we're so interconnected. But um, once again, you have to package it for the tourism model. And so the more people that are here to defend that heritage, you just ultimately even lose it. Yeah, marketing is real. Marketing is a tool of colonialism so much because you you very much have to think, what do white audiences want? And everybody else will follow because if white people start doing it, then everyone will do it. And like that's like gentrification is like a perfect example of that. That is internal colonialism of like an internal predominantly black or person of color community. And sometimes, yeah, you have other people of color contributing to gentrification. You have other people of color who are expats moving to other nations, but it's all, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, 
all, I see all of these white folks who are usually the first people who are able to do that because they have the means. And then when a person of color feels like, oh, I finally, I've made it. Like I'm on their level. Like I've gone, I've gotten the degree. I got the job. I moved to this other country where I can succeed. Now it's my turn. And then they end up being complicit or participants in that colonial system themselves by gentrifying a neighborhood or everybody moves to Hawaii. Like that's like the new thing while indigenous Hawaiians are like, please stop moving to Hawaii in the middle of a pandemic, especially like, but it's just this never ending cycle where colonizers get you to participate. They like make you complicit. They trick you into participating. Yeah. I mean, and that's how it becomes like the normative or the standard. It's like the same, you know, colonialism, capitalism, like all these things, they force you to be, well, they force everyone to be participant and then, and therefore say, well, you're complicit, you're upholding and therefore like you can't critique it. And then you have like the purity politics around Mm -hmm. like people hilariously being like, oh, you critique capitalism, but you like you make money or you do, you know, like all these like stupid ass things you like throughout is, is that then you say, you know, force you into the system and then say, you can't critique the system because you're in the system, but there's no alternative. So you can't get out the system. It's, it's global. I mean, maybe if I could move, if Jeff Bezos, if you can hear me, Jeff Bezos, you have an extra ticket on your flight to wherever you're going in space, then maybe I can critique the system because I'm, I'm out of it, but it's, it's a global system. Like you cannot leave what has been created at this point in some way, shape or form you're connected to it. And that's what I want people to understand is that the decisions that happen that we make in one country, even if they are with good intentions, because I do think that there are people who are talking about the climate crisis and environmentalism that have good intentions, but like the impact is not positive. You have to understand like all of the different ways these things can be connected. And some of those ways are like more obvious than others, but we should always be thinking like, my actions are, it's going to have a ripple effect. Anything I do is going to impact other people. So if I can at least think about some of the more obvious ways that this might impact other people, who am I not including in these conversations? Mm -hmm. Who's not at the table when they have all of these like environmental summits, which I don't necessarily think do a whole lot. They're still not inviting like indigenous folks to the table. Like they, they need to invite the communities that are most impacted by it to sit at the table and talk about what their experiences are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and that's it. It's like, but but beyond like a tokenization, which is like happening so much at all these climate conferences, you're like, oh, I have like one indigenous representative and they're going to give an impassioned speech and we're all going to be like, oh my God, but then keep going with like the same policies that, that we've been having. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that's like, that's like in, in part is what we're always trying to, to drive is that like, our our work isn't like chasing after you know all of the the symptoms of things we're not just like uh chasing after the bare minimum of carbon emissions and like all all of these things that it's like at the end of the day like what are you doing maybe extending yourself like another week another six months and things like and that's where like if we can't even come to an understanding of what is like the systems of violence that are causing this crisis then how can we ever be equipped to actually take like meaningful action in creating like a better and a new world. I agree with you so much. (laughs) I think that that is probably why I went into this sort of like, I guess like radical education where it's like, I'm just going to tell people what the fuck is up, just be straight up. And like, let's just get into it. Let's talk about white supremacy. Let's talk about colonialism. Cause you're right. If you can't, if we can't even agree 
on like how we got here, we're never going to be able to get out of it. Like if it's like controversial to say like, yeah, like folks colonizing and moving into a particular place and then destroying the environment and the people that were there is contributing to the climate crisis, we're not going to get out of it because they're going to think that maybe that's still a strategy that we could use, which like you said, like these neo-colonial conservationist efforts in other countries, like not connecting how those are two sides of the same coin. It's always hard to wrap up these episodes because I always feel like people want to be like, oh, you know, like, what's your advice going forward? Which is like such bullshit because (laughs) you're like, um, but I, I mean, I guess like, as you're thinking about how we can move forward with radical education, with this understanding, with trying to like move collective consciousness, whatever these strategies are, like, you know, where do you see like the next steps and, and how do you think we can get there? I think first and foremost, where I would start is taking an inventory of your life. What foods do you like to eat? What clothes do you like to wear? What books do you like to read? And looking at them and seeing like, are any of these things centering like the indigenous people who are a part of any of this? The books I'm reading, the food I'm eating, the clothes I'm wearing. Also, I would say people should also just start with unpacking and understanding the process of colonization. There's a really great documentary on HBO called Exterminate All the Brutes. Highly recommend people watch that as like kind of like just baby first steps. And this is like a completely new topic. But just diving in and understanding like what that actually looks like. Read about the different, like wherever you live in the world, read about the history of colonialism in your particular part of the world. Like what happened to the people who live there? What is currently happening to the people who live there? And how is that connected to the past, the present, and the future? Starting there, I think, is like a really good place. And then thinking about like, what part of environmentalism is are you most passionate about? Are you most passionate about the oceans? And learn about the particular people who lived where you live and their relationship to the ocean. How do they take care of it? Because I'm sure like in the past, there were things that we could improve on today. Like I I don't think that everything that we are doing in the current time period is necessarily bad or detrimental. I think a lot of the frameworks and ideologies and theories that we've come up with when when they're combined with indigenous knowledge is really powerful. So using like the current frameworks and theories that we have, think about like, if you're really passionate about ocean conservation, what were the people who lived in that particular part of the ocean doing? What were your ancestors doing? How can you incorporate those practices with the theories and frameworks that you're learning about today? That is awesome. And also see like what people are currently doing. Cause you know, like I'm all about connecting with folks on a local level, on a national level, on an international level. You know, I think that like the, the more coalition building that we can do um, in our understandings in our work forward is, is great. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, I'm sure we could talk for a thousand years, but hours. <laughs> I know I'm like looking at it, I was like, oh God, it's almost been an hour. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much. We're really hoping to like continue to expand this. And yeah, and so maybe you can just drop how people can follow your work, your education um, further. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at GFX underscore prints that is p-r-i-n-t-s you can also find me at my website it's just gabriellefelder.com yeah those are probably the two biggest places where i'm at where you can see my work you can get in touch with me there also i just want to say 
y'all, if you ever hang out, Julia and Neil, if you are ever like getting drunk to talk about fruit again, please hit me up. If anybody else wants to contact me to get drunk and talk about fruit, I'm your girl. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's a, that's like a daily occurrence. So you'll have to be tapped into those conversations. We'll definitely get you, get you involved. Well, awesome. Thank you for listening in. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We would like to say a special thank you to our guest, Gabby Felder. Be sure to follow her and her work on Instagram and also on her website. Thank you again to Climate Control Projects, who is our proud sponsor for today's episode. And as always, you can follow us on our work at Bad Activist Collective on Instagram. Follow us on our website, badactivistcollective.com. And also, Feel free to subscribe to this here podcast, wherever fun podcasts are streamed. Thank you so much for listening and see ya.